Welcome to the Deals Talking M&A podcast, sponsored by Baker McKenzie. I'm your host, Surani Fernando. In today's episode, we're zooming in on the world of post-merger integration. It's often an area that's overlooked amidst the usual M&A hype and buzz, but nonetheless incredibly important for a successful deal execution and optimal deal value realization. We'll be exploring some of the more nuanced considerations for dealmakers tasked with closing deals, particularly in light of a shifting regulatory and governance landscape for global transactions. Joining us on the podcast are two of Baker McKenzie's partners from different sides of the Atlantic. First up, we have Helen Mantle, based in the Chicago office, and Joe Hewitt, based in London. Both are knee-deep in advising a number of multinationals on this complex part of the M&A process. Welcome to the both of you. Thank you. Great to be here. Thanks. So for most of us following M&A deals, we often focus on all the activity around negotiations leading up to a deal signing. After that, there are antitrust considerations, but we don't really see a lot of attention around some of the key parts of the post-merger integration process for a deal's execution. Are either of you perhaps able to give us a general overview of the main steps involved in that process, I guess from deal signing to completed integration? Helen, do you want to start us off? Sure. Thank you. I'll start by saying that once the deal closes, the buyer has actually purchased the potential for value creation. And the next step is to make sure that the buyer yields that value. And this is often achieved by integrating the target business into the buyer's existing business. So what does that involve? Depending upon the specific objectives of the integration, it could involve a variety of activities. For example, streamlining regulatory licenses, combining supply chains, combining customer contracts, entity rationalization, workforce reduction, and so on. The most common underlining drivers are, of course, the company's ultimate business objectives, but also tax considerations, so achieving an integrated organization that's optimized from a tax perspective, and IT and systems considerations. Our role as outside counsel is to help the company design the integration plans and then implement them. And very often, the planning actually begins in the pre-closing phase, as the buyer wants to integrate quickly after closing and yield the value from the target business that motivated them to buy it in the first place. Yeah, I think as Helen said, we often in our post-acquisition integration teams talk about closing the deal being just the beginning and that we really see that on these types of post-acquisition integration projects that actually there needs to be a lot of work done at the post-acquisition stage. And ideally, as Helen says, we get involved in even before the deal closes in, in starting to plan the integration to make sure that those synergies that motivated the deal in the first place are actually realized. So very often our role as counsel on the types of projects. Partly it's legal, of course. There are corporate law considerations, tax drivers, employment law issues, commercial contract issues. So we're often advising on those legal aspects. But very often we need to take a role really in helping clients navigate the practical considerations too. And that's where our experience of these types of projects really comes to the fore because There's no one size fits all. Every post-acquisition integration will be somewhat different depending on the the business that's been acquired and the legacy business and really the overall objectives of the acquisition. 
But there are some common themes. And very often what we see is that those kind of practical considerations, things like IT systems compatibility, are driving timescales and even the the approach to integration that our clients are engaged in. Mm -hmm. I guess if we're looking back 20 years, I can remember clients closing a deal and just wanting to eagerly get to closing. And then they'd say, right, now I've inherited this organization. What do I want to do with it? And and that's when their planning began. And and it's quite different now. There's uh, an expectation, I would say, on most functions to think about integration before the deal closes, sometimes before it even signs. And as I understand, the merger integration process has become much more complicated in recent years. What would you say have been some major and universal areas of change that have required some revisions in the way you advise clients? I think you're absolutely right. It has become more complicated. I would, if I had to pick maybe three things that have changed over the last 20 years or so, I would start with the regulatory environment. It has become appreciably more complex. And now we must view transactions, even intercompany transactions, through the lens of several regulatory prongs, antitrust, foreign investment regulations, and subsidiary directives. The second thing that comes to mind is ESG, and this is still a relatively new area. And it's an evolving backdrop, I would say, to getting transactions done. And again, not just third-party deals, but intercompany reorgs. And the third is something Joe touched on, which is, I think, the IT systems function within a company has become more relevant and powerful than ever before. In some cases, the completion dates of our integration transactions are tied directly to IT deadlines, whereas 20 years ago or so, we would have expected the tax or legal departments to be the main drivers of timing. I would fully agree with all of that. And that's certainly our experience as well from this side of the Atlantic. And particularly that sort of regulatory environment that Helen mentioned. Even in the last five years, we've seen a lot of development in that area. In the UK, for example, we now have foreign investment review across 17 business sectors, and those are applying even on intergroup transactions. And that very often comes as a surprise to clients who are sort of thinking that those sort of antitrust, foreign investment review, those other sort of regulatory hurdles have mostly been overcome at the acquisition stage or the acquisition of of the TOPCO. And they're surprised to learn sometimes that they even need to factor that into their process and time frame for the legal entity integration piece post-acquisition. So that has certainly changed and, and fully agree with what Helen was saying as well about the emerging ESG landscape. And that's, as we know, driving the identification of targets as, as the way in which they're integrated and that IT complexity for sure. And, you know, you you did touch a little bit on this, but as both of you are based on different sides of the Atlantic, would you say some of those challenges like foreign investment review, ESG, are mainly similar across the pond or do they differ greatly based on unique laws or culture or anything else? Yeah, I would say with respect to the laws in and of themselves, I would think that Europe is further ahead of the US if you want to see it that way in terms of number of laws in place, the number of accompanying regulations and directives that have been introduced, how they're being interpreted and put into practice and so on. Uh, That's definitely the case when you're looking at ESG in particular. But as far as the practical impact of the implementation of integrations, many of our clients have global operations. So by nature, They will be mindful of U.S., European, and other regional rules around the world. So in that sense, I think the experience of U.S. and European clients is quite similar. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I would I would agree with that. I mean, very often the clients that are coming to us, it will be multinationals with global operations. You know, we'll sometimes be managing an integration process across tens, even more than a hundred sometimes jurisdictions. And so, what we really need to do is have ourselves that sort of that truly global view, which means that yes, there's one plan, there's one sort of overarching approach. But it needs to take into account those local nuances. And part of our job is helping to explain them, navigate them, maybe highlight to clients the ones that we think might be a surprise. But given the nature of the businesses that are being integrated, the global nature of them, it doesn't tend to make a difference really whether the client is headquartered in Europe or the US because they're going to have to face the same issues. And I know Baker McKenzie recently updated their advisory handbook on these processes. The first version was 20 years ago, and the most recent update was five years ago. We've talked a lot about the changing landscape and additional complexities in the integration process. But what would you say has largely stayed the same over these periods? I think one of the things that's um, interesting about having done these types of projects for a couple of decades now is that, yes, there is change. There's a lot of legislative change, regulatory change that's making a difference to the way in which we do these projects and sometimes the complexity of them. But other things are perennial issues. So, for example, the need for a really cross-functional, multi-jurisdictional overarching plan for your integration the need to ensure that employment considerations are are really front and centre, particularly in a number of European jurisdictions where those employment law considerations are really quite key. All of that is, is not new. And we've been saying the same things on those types of projects for the last 20 years. So a combination of the new and the old, for sure. In terms of what stayed the same, I think for me, the importance of cross functional alignment. Companies have been thankfully pretty consistent about this, wanting their functions to work together and understand each other's goals, receive each other's inputs so that there's no damage to the timeline or the implementation of the plan. And this is where the emergence of the PMO over the last 20 years has been incredibly valuable to make sure that all those functions are working towards the same goal. The second thing I'd say is I think the project and the planning is an iterative process. Uh, Of course, we want the plan to be detailed and clear as much as possible, but it's almost never the case that it remains static. In fact, I've never seen an integration. I don't know if Joe, you have where the first version of the integration plan has stayed the same throughout the project. There's always refinement, sometimes material change during the course of the project. Yeah, literally never seen a project of that nature where um, the plan is static. So it is, as Helen says, an iterative process. And I would add another point, which is that cross-functional approach. Partly that's necessary because an integration project, as I said before, it's legal, commercial and practical. So each function has a role to play. But I think the other thing that we've seen that stayed the same, and it's a perennial topic we've covered in all of the handbooks, is that just as there's no static plan that never gets changed throughout the life of the project. There's no sort of complete solution that satisfies all the functions equally. So, you know, very often you will have, particularly when you look at timing, you know, the business sort of driving forward for fast integration because they want to be able to achieve those commercial synergies. But other functions, you know, be it finance or or HR, wanting to take a slower path for compliance reasons. And so clearly any plan needs to be made in accordance with the law, in compliance with the law and an applicable regulation. But very 
often there are choices that can be made about the way in which competing priorities can be navigated. And so one of the things we've always said in the handbook is in order to navigate those competing priorities, because there won't be a solution that satisfies everyone equally, there does need to be really strong engagement throughout the life of the project from senior management, partly reminding people of what the overarching objectives of the acquisition were, because that can serve as then the touchstone for making those decisions around the various options that that might be in play and how those competing priorities might be navigated. Mm Okay, and I guess moving on to perhaps some of the more practical, tangible considerations with executing a deal, and perhaps you might be able to draw from some of your experiences. So when it comes to actually implementing the integration, how has the landscape evolved when it comes to carrying out a smooth integration, for example, with personnel, different departments and internal systems? Yeah, again, I think we're looking at an issue where some things have stayed the same and some things have changed. We still work with specific implementation tools, such as micro-step plans, macro-step plans that are incredibly valuable and necessary to certain functions like legal and tax to memorialize what happened during the implementation of the project. I think in terms of what has changed, I would probably point to the, like I said earlier, the emergence of the PMO. I can recall people thinking that this was not important. I can recall an advisory, an outside advisor sending one person on site with a laptop to try to collect information from various functions and compile a list that no one would ever look at. And we've gone from that to uh, a truly significant and important and very effective function, I would say, to make sure that all the functions within the company are talking to one another and coordinating properly with outside advisors as well. Most recently, I've seen quite a few clients whose executive teams have wanted to speak directly to the PMO to see how the project was going and and what its status is. So I, I welcome that development and I would say that's been a big change. Yeah, and definitely, I, I would agree with that. And I think the other sort of piece of it is just generally the sort of tech that goes with it, if you like, with that sort of more professionalized project management. We now have things like micro plans, so these sort of legal step plans that live on a, a shared um, re- resource, like a SharePoint site that everyone can access in real time. We have stakeholder dashboards, so senior stakeholders in the project can see sort of at a glance where you are with integration of the project and implementation of the project and all of that tech that really serves to support what we've been talking about, which is that sort of really cross-functional effort involving lots of different functions at different times. These projects are often very long. It's quite different from a deal timetable. Sometimes deals can be done pretty quickly, but post-merger integration, post-acquisition integration tends to be, if it's of sufficient size, really quite a long project. And so needing to make sure there's a clear record of the plan and what has already been done, a clear repository for documents and one sort of resource for everyone to use to keep aware or keep abreast of where things are with the project and who's who, that becomes increasingly important, particularly as there, there may be personnel changes kind of throughout the life of the project. So that tech resource becomes really key. And we've seen much more investment in those types of products and we see them working very well on the implementation of these projects. And I guess looking ahead to the future, just with how m processes are changing, taking into account all the financial, legal and logistical considerations, what do each of you foresee in terms of the future evolution of processes and challenges in this whole post-merge integration space? 
So a couple of things come to mind for me. I think Joe touched on it earlier, but I think it's going to increase as a trend, I suppose, and that is a greater decision-making on the part of company subsidiaries around the world. If I reflect on the last 20 years, you know, I can remember implementing projects where U.S. headquarters would really make all the decisions direct what had to be done, how it had to be done, and in some cases was not executed correctly, but nevertheless, implementation went through and they'd call it a day, let's say. Uh, I think that's changed considerably as a result of all the laws we mentioned that have come into effect, but also because of how companies conduct themselves today. Their corporate image, their governance standards have changed quite a bit. So what you're going to see is a lot more decision-making on the part of subs, their involvement in conversations, but also governance matters, corporate approvals, and so on. So I think that's one important thing to keep an eye on. And the second thing I would at least encourage companies to keep an eye on is, again, the complex regulatory environment. We have lots of clients say to us, how could an antitrust law possibly regulate an intercompany reorganization? And the answer is it can. And in fact, there's a good number of antitrust laws on the books now that purport to regulate internal reorgs. Similarly with foreign investment laws, same sort of question. How is my reorg possibly a threat to national security? And the answer is the same. There are quite a number of laws now on the books that want to monitor the movement of foreign-owned assets within their country, even if they're just going from one affiliate to another. So Bottom line, I would say, is check the regulatory requirements as soon as possible because they will impact your timeline. Yeah, we definitely think that there's going to be growth in that area. And the other one that's sort of linked to it, I suppose, and Helen mentioned it earlier, is this evolving ESG landscape. One of the ways in which I think we see this playing out in the post-acquisition integration sphere is much more sort of focus on the diligence that will need to be done in respect of, for example, the acquired business's supply chain to ensure that the acquirer company is able to meet all its new obligations in respect of supply chain due diligence, particularly if it's subject to the new EU directive in that area when that comes into force. Because, you know, very often, yes, there'll be diligence carried out at the deal stage, but very often that will not be hugely detailed. A lot of compliance issues may come to light post-acquisition, you know, when you're really living and breathing the business and you've got people on the ground, things that on paper looked okay may not be okay. And so I think some of those drivers around ensuring that the acquired business is sort of compliant with yours in the broadest sense in terms of its ESG approach, and particularly those supply chain compliance issues, that may be a big factor in the way in which post-acquisition integration is carried out in the future. You know, and it may even be that actually there can be situations where the acquired business isn't going to be fully integrated into the acquirer business, at least in the initial stage, because of concerns around those types of issues. Well, Joe, Helen, this has been a really interesting and insightful discussion. So many moving parts for companies to think about, particularly those large multinationals trying to expand and diversify. So thanks for sharing your valuable expertise. Thanks to the audience for tuning in and thanks to Baker McKenzie for sponsoring the podcast. I'm Sarani Fernando and stay tuned for the next installment of Talking M&A.